This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number three of the series, The Form of Sound Words. We were looking at our last meeting at the first of these sound words which it is so useful for us to appreciate and that is the word access. The access, according to Romans chapter 5, is based upon the fact that we can say we are justified by faith. And since we are justified by faith, we have access. Because the only barrier between us and God was not whether we were Jews or Gentiles, but because we were sinful. And that has been removed. And then there's another aspect to access. In Hebrews, the veil of the temple was rent. And in Ephesians 2, the middle wall of partition has gone down. So again, whatever your original calling may be, the access has been secured. Well now, arising out of that, is the next word that we have on our program, it just happens to come alphabetically, by accident so far as I'm concerned, and that is the word adoption. The access means that now there is nothing between us and God. Our adoption says we can go into that holy place and we can say, Abba, Father. Let us give us uh, all the consideration that this wonderful teaching now demands by looking at the passages of Scripture which speak of it. And first, before this tape recording began to be made, we read a portion of the Epistle to the Galatians. Now I'm wanting to turn to that passage because it will give us the Apostles' argument and give us an idea of what adoption meant when the Apostle was writing. Chapter 3 of Galatians. We read from verse 15 to verse 7 of chapter 4. And those of you who are listening to this tape, when this tape is run out and the little exposition is over, I commend to you the reading of that passage right through so that you may keep pace with our study. Now, why is the Apostle, why does he spend so much time? See, a great piece of chapter 3 and a portion of chapter 4 on this one theme. Well, it's necessary and very, very important. I notice in the New English Bible, you know, that's just out, that they have done a good thing in this sense because an ordinary person who has no knowledge of the Bible, when he opens the book and sees about adoption, there's nothing to tell him or warn him that it does not mean anything like being put into Dr. Bernardo's homes. He doesn't know that. So they have got, instead of the word adoption, the status as sons. And that's very near to the truth. Why, O Thessia? Why else is a son? Thessia is the part of the verb to place. It's nothing to do with being born, but being placed in the position of a firstborn son and heir. Now the apostle is trying to deliver these Galatian Christians from the bondage of the law. He says, stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made you free. I say unto you, if you're justified by the law, you're fallen from grace and Christ your prophet, you're nothing. He says, now look, you Galatians, you know very well the law that obtains in your country of the making of a will. So he says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And when Paul uses a statement like that, he's not going to quote scripture, is going to talk about something that you know. 
something with which you're acquainted in your ordinary everyday life. He says this, Though it be but a man's will, not merely a covenant, here a man is, is making his will. And we have the actual records now of the law governing the Roman and Greek will making, which differs a little bit from our own. And I notice again that the New English Bible says uh, something to this effect. Though it be but a man's will, yet if it be confirmed, no codicil is allowed to be added to it. You see? Now that's very different from our will making in this country. You could make a will, then you can have it altered, you can make a fresh one, and you can add a codicil to it. But that wasn't the truth when the apostle wrote. They made one will, and that was all, no more. They weren't permitted to. So they fought it out very seriously first, because the will was not so much concerned with leaving a legacy to somebody, but the will was appointing who was to be the firstborn and the heir. That's comprised with the word adoption. Now somebody may say to me, but how can you will a person to be a firstborn? They are either firstborn or not. Oh yes, first in nature, but not in law. Let's go back to the Old Testament in mind for a moment. In Genesis 10, you've got 70 different nations named. And not till Genesis 11 does Abraham come into the story. So before ever Abraham was born, there were 70 nations. Yet, when Moses went back to Pharaoh in Egypt, he demanded that he should let God's firstborn go. So Israel, who came last of all in the order of nations, was God's firstborn. And God said, if you don't let my firstborn, I'd have to touch your firstborn. That's the reason why that took place. So you see, it was appointing the heir and placing him as a son. So he says, in those rather strange words at first, he said in verse 17, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. He says, you see, just the same as when you make your will, and you appoint that particular person to be your heir, well, he said, just in the same way God appointed this particular seed to be his heir, and when he gave the law 430 years afterwards, that didn't alter it any more than you can alter it. His point is, if you can make a will that cannot be altered, do you mean to tell me God cannot make a will that cannot be altered? So he said, if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now comes a rather peculiar piece. It says, wherefore, then serveth the law, it was superadded, as the word is, given over and above an extra because of transgressions. Till the seed should come, it wasn't given to give them the firstborn position. It was, it was done because of sin and the need of a salvation. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now that, that is a reference to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. If you look at the Acts of the Apostles where Stephen is speaking, he, he accuses the people of Israel They've had the law given by the disposition of angels and they haven't kept it. That was at Mount Sinai. But he says, now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now that's a bit abstruse, isn't it? You say, now what does that mean? Well, that does need unravelling a bit for some people. 
Look, he says, if the law at Mount Sinai was given through a mediator, and the scripture says it was, there must have been two parties, mustn't there? There must have been God on the one hand, who made a promise, and Israel on the other who said, yes, we'll agree to it. And that's what we read. When Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, which was the basis of this covenant, they said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses took the words back to God. Took them back. But what about the promise made to Abraham? Well, when the moment came for God to make the promise, we are told that Abraham was put into a deep sleep. Well, there could no possibility then of agreeing to anything, could there? A man in a deep sleep is not responsible for any promise that anybody makes. So in that, God was one. There was no mediator there. It was God making an unconditional promise to Abraham and he's going to fulfill it. Whatever may happen with regard to the law of Moses and the need for redemption from it. Well, that's his argument. He says, this placing of the sun is irrevocable, cannot be altered, doesn't depend upon what you do or anybody else promises, it's the will of God. And then he used the word seed. It says in verse 16, now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. And he draws your attention. And to, he said not to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Well, you say, if that's the case, it shuts us all out. Oh no, oh no. At first you may say, not if it's not many, it's only one, and that one is Christ. Well, where do we come in? Ah, we come in because we are made one with him. Oh, you say, where do you find that? Oh, I find it in the same chapter. Yes, look. Verse um, 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you'll notice that you mustn't read there is neither Jew nor Greek like that. This word there must be given its rightful value. In that position, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are Abraham's seed. So although there's only one seed, and there's only one seed still, all in Christ make one. So there's the position. Now he enlarges on it in the next few verses in chapter 4. He says, now look, I say this, you know as well as I do, that if anyone with great possessions and great property as an heir, the child is born, it has to have nurses, and then it has governors, it has someone looking after the estate and seeing that it comports itself properly and so on, until the time appointed by the father. And then the tutors have to withdraw and then they are responsible, they've reached the period of being adults. Well, he said, just the same with us. We were once in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, that goes back to Genesis 3, made under the law, that goes back to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, so he deals with both cases, to redeem them that were under the law, what for? That we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might be placed as the firstborn heirs of God. That's the adoption. And then he says, because you are sons, God hath given you this priceless privilege. He has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, and you cry, Abba, Father. Now to us, that may mean very little. We say, well, I suppose Abba means Father, and that's the end of it. But it's not quite. Because the apostle 
was a man who knew the religious feelings and teachings of his own people. In fact, Galatians itself says that he was far and away above his equals in his uh, knowledge and upholding of their traditions. And one of the rabbinical laws is this, that no slave was permitted to use the word Abba. It was an exclusive word for anyone who was freeborn child of God in Israel. And in the New Testament it occurs three times. It occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane, where our Saviour said, Abba, Father. It occurs in Romans, the eighth chapter, where we have the adoption mentioned, and it comes in uh, this passage here. It's the exclusive right of those who have access into the presence of their Father and can use this very priceless expression. Well, that is, in general, the idea of what it means when we read in the scripture adoption or to be placed by law or not, I mustn't say law to be placed by will in the position of an heir of God for if you're a son, you're an heir there's no possibility of being given this adoption and nothing going with it there's an inheritance in view well now the next thing is this we find that there are in the New Testament Three different companies who have the adoption. Three different companies who have the firstborn's position. And of course, that also makes you say, well, how can that be? If this means a firstborn son, how can you talk about three firstborn sons? Well, at first you say that seems to make it ridiculous. But then supposing you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, the revised reading. I don't know how the revised version puts it, but I believe they've altered it. And I noticed that the New English Bible alters it. 3.15 Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now that is not quite what the Greek says. What it actually says, in whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Every family. Not merely the whole. They're begging the question when they say the whole because they didn't quite see how they could be every family. But if you keep to what God says, he has a family on earth and he has a family in heaven. So that you see, the only way in which you could demonstrate this in ordinary human terms, if you were to say, now you see that old venerable gentleman walking down the street with a long white beard when he's got three firstborn sons, well, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, how's that possible? Oh, I see. He's been married three times. Well, that's the only way we can get it here. But it could be three families with a firstborn in each one. Well, in the case of God, that is what is planned. So we're going to first of all look at these three passages where the adoption comes and then see how they suit the three spheres of blessing. Now, the first one is Romans, the ninth chapter. You know, the Epistle to the Romans has a great section from 1 to 8 in which what we call the doctrine has been laid down. Now he turns from the doctrine to the problems arising about the position of Israel and these are more what we call a dispensational setting. So he says, chapter 9, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I had great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ 
for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Well, he doesn't need to guessing who they are. He says, who are Israelites. So here we, here we have the apostle not praying for the church as a whole, but he's praying for his own people who are Israelites. He's praying for someone according to the flesh, not a spiritual Israel. I've never read anywhere in the Bible that there is a spiritual Israel, but it's a term used. But the apostle doesn't use it. He says, I mean literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, my brethren according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now he's going to give a list of their peculiar prerogatives, the blessings that belong to that people. And what's the first one he puts there? Well, you see, can't you, in front of you? The first one he puts there is the adoption. He gives a series. The adoption comes first, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises and whose are the fathers. Then he comes back to the flesh again. And even Christ, according to the flesh, belongs to them. And of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. So there is the peculiar position of Israel and no one can intrude into that. No one else has this position in the flesh. Now you and I, by being Gentiles, in the flesh are outsiders completely. There are no promises made in the scriptures, so far as we can learn, of anything that's blessings, while we remain as we are by nature. We have to have them all in the spirit. Here's a contrast then. There is an adoption for a people who are in the flesh, and this people is just the people of Israel who he calls his brethren who are Israelites. Now, we could go further afield and start ransacking the scriptures, but I haven't time for that and there's no need, because I'm sure you know that the promises that are here mentioned, whose are the fathers and the promises, these promises are very much concerned with the future of Israel in connection with this very earth. There is one aspect of their promises that we read sometimes and perhaps pass by without very much notice. But I think it bears particularly on the future, in this sense. Over and over again, God promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that their seed was going to be so numerous that it would be just as easy to count the sand on the seashore or the stars of heaven as to count the people of Israel. Now, is that a mere figure of speech and doesn't, mustn't take it too literally, or does it mean because you see at the moment Israel are about the smallest nation in numbers that there is yet that self same people according to what God says are going to be so numerous presently that you might as well try to number the sand on the seashore well now you see when you look at the prophecies and see how the book of Judges with its extermination of the Canaanites is going to be more than carried out when God starts if we feel a bit squeamish about the, the sack of Je Jericho and the destruction of that city, you think of what God says he's going to do when that great and dreadful day comes. And then the prophecy of Zechariah at the last chapter says that the nations that are left, think of those words, the nations that are left, the book of the Revelation speaks of a third part of the shipping, a third part of the cities of the nations falling, or there's going to be a decimation beyond your dreams. And we mustn't blame God for it. It looks as though they're going to do it themselves. And they're getting ready for it, you see. And then, 
God's purpose begins to shape. And the dominant nation of this earth and the one that will, that will cover the earth to a large extent will be the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We just say, oh, well that seems unfair, we're all crowded out. Friends, we are. We are so crowded out that God says, I'll give you another sphere of blessing altogether. For some who belong to Christ. So should we take a step up? Now you see this chart that you have in front of you. Uh, the colours are not very distinct, I'm sorry to say, but the bottom one is green of that pyramid, the middle one is blue, and the top one is supposed to be gold, but they rather merge, don't they, in this light. Well, it doesn't matter. I've given you there three, uh, three, as it were, spheres of blessing, three departments in which an adoption obtains. Now, here we have the first one, the bottom one, Israel according to the flesh. Well, now, if they are first, if they are the firstborn on the earth, it seems to imply there will be other nations who are the rest of the family. You see, it's no good saying you're first if there's nobody else, is there? Like I think I've told you, the boy came home and told his father he got first in a certain subject at school, and the father put his hand in his pocket, he was going to give him a little tip, but he said, how many were in it? Well, nobody else except me, Dad. See? That didn't work. So you've got the nations of the earth going up to Jerusalem three times a year or sending their envoys to learn the law of the Lord from the priestly nation that will then be in force. You see, that's the earth. So there'll be Israel and the rest of the nations. Well, when we read further in the epistle to the Galatians that we did just now, we shall discover that this doesn't belong to Jerusalem down here. This belongs to Jerusalem up there. This is the first time we've got in the New Testament any idea that there was a heavenly Jerusalem. So shall we look at chapter 4 of Galatians? He says in verse 21, Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. That's the first time there's a, a, another Jerusalem. Jerusalem which is above. Now those who are going to tread the streets of the new Jerusalem are not Jews only, not exclusively. Because we've already had at the end of chapter 3, in this new company there is neither Jew nor Greek. The national element is these blotted out in this new adoption. So here's, here's the next family of God. There's still the family of faith. There's still the family of God but they're not going to be blessed in the earth. The earth belongs to this earthly people and it will be a delightsome land when the curse is removed. If we never knew anything more, it would be like heaven to every one of us. But God got something even more wonderful in store for some and that is described more particularly when we come to the book of the Revelation which speaks of that new Jerusalem. I saw the heavenly Jerusalem descending out of God, from heaven uh, down to the earth and it was 
uh, largely occupied by those that overcome and stand firm in the day of anti-Christian persecution. So here's another company, here's another sphere of blessing, quite distinct from the meek that shall inherit the earth. And uh, for that, we might turn for a moment to the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, there is a link between the epistle to the Hebrews and the epistle to the Galatians that might be worthwhile mentioning. Dr. Thirtle, who was a friend of Dr. Budinger in the earlier days, noticed when going through one important Greek uh, manuscript that someone in the early days had put, in, had put the alphabet, the letters of the alphabet, over the epistles of, of the uh, New Testament and they didn't go A, B, G, they just dodged about and he wondered why. And then he began to see that they were linking up epistles that might have been in groups. And the, the two that came together was, although they were separated in the book, the two that came together were the epistle to the Galatians and the epistle to the Hebrews. Now they're the only epistles that speak about the heavenly Jerusalem. Galatians says, Jerusalem which is above, the Hebrew epistle enlarges upon it and speaks about it and why. And the same argument is pursued in Galatians as in Hebrews. There's no perfection. He says, having begun in the spirit, I am now made perfect in the flesh, he says to the Galatians. If you're justified by law, you're falling from grace. So he says to the Hebrews, the law was a shadow of good things to come, not the very, you, you must now be transferred from law to grace. So there's much to be said for the idea that the epistle to the Galatians was the covering letter in which the epistle to the Hebrews was sent. Because there's no name of an apostle in Hebrews, but he wasn't an apostle to the Hebrews. He just said, suffer a word of exhortation. But he covered it by a letter to the Galatians, and in the Hebrews, in any part of the church or in anywhere else, could read what he had said. Well, now you see, this is linking these two together. So, if this adoption in Galatians places those in the heavenly Jerusalem, then the others who form a part of the same seed, as we are told, they have their this description of their position in this epistle of the Hebrews, and we look at chapter 11 for a moment. It speaks of Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, notice, the inheritance is still in view, just as in Galatians, he obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned, notice the word, he didn't settle, he sojourned. A settler is one person, a sojourner is one who keeps on picking up and moving on, still a wanderer, still waiting. He sojourned in the land of promise as though he were living in a strange country, although it was the land of promise. Why was this? And he dwelt in, our version says, dwelt in tabernacles. Well, that may give you a wrong idea, because if you read the description of the tabernacle with its marvellous gold furniture and its embroidery, you might think you were getting down into Tutankhamen's lot. No, no. This word tabernacle is just the ordinary word for a tent, a frail structure. He was willing, I've sometimes said, he was content to live in a tent, but I mustn't say that, must I? So, all right, I won't say it then. He was willing to live in a tent. Why? 
Not because he hadn't got any ideas of a decent dwelling place, because he was waiting for a better country, a heavenly. So let us read a little bit further. They were, he was willing to dwell in a tent with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And it's picked up again presently and says in verse 13 that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Then in chapter 12 he comes back to it once more. Verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. He's been speaking about Mount Sinai in the preceding verses. But not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. The church of the firstborn. That's another way of saying the adoption. The firstborn. This is the church of the adopted ones. So you see, just as on earth, Israel on the earth will be the first nation, with the nations subsidiary to them, so in the heavenly Jerusalem, these will be the church of the firstborn, and there will be angels subjected to them. Angels subjected to them. Then when we come to the next calling, which takes us far above all, it's not angels subjected to them, but principalities and powers. So let's move, shall we, because of the flight of time to Ephesians, because once more we're going to read about the adoption. Ephesians 1. We'll start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So there's the sphere. Wherever heavenly places in Christ may be, that is the sphere of this new calling. And we are told at the end of this chapter that when Christ ascended to these heavenly places, it was far above all principality of power and might and dominion. Well, this is something even greater than the heavenly Jerusalem. But we'll read for a moment from here. According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation or before the overthrow of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons, not children, the adoption of sons. Here we have the same thing. So here we have the third adoption. Three different groups who are the firstborn in their sphere. Israel on the earth, the company that should inherit the heavenly Jerusalem, and now the church called out under the terms of the mystery during this present period. They are not connected with the earth. They are not connected with the heavenly Jerusalem, but they are connected with where Christ sits at the right hand of God far above all. Now, some people think that's taking too big to ourselves, but it's based upon the scriptures, because it says in chapter 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, 
even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you saved, and hath raised us up together, say, well that's all right, that's true of others, oh yes, but not the next bit, and made us sit together. Now, that's a staggering thought, to sit together. Not merely to stand before the throne, but to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the third chapter, you see another relationship with principalities and powers. I ought to have given you the verse in chapter 1. Make sure of it, shall we? The, uh, he prays for three things, and the third item of his prayer in verse 19 is, What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who do believe? according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. See, he is raised and he is seated, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. No angels are mentioned here. When Peter speaks about the ascension of Christ, he says, angels and principalities are subject to him. He puts angels in. But there are no angels here, friends. There are spheres in heaven. And the principality means a principality. The principality of the throne means a throne and dominion. And the angels are the messengers of glory. These are the aristocracy of glory. And the church of the one body is above the very aristocracy of glory. It seems almost breathtaking, doesn't it? It seems almost too good to be true. And he goes on to tell you that it's this particular church that is in view. And have put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, it's that church, and there's no other one like it, apart from this revelation of Paul in Ephesians. Well, then we come into chapter 3, to the other reference to principalities and powers. He there speaks about making known as the prisoner this new revelation, this mystery, uh, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel whereof I was made a minister. And then presently, he says, verse 10, to the intent that now, not future, but now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the purpose of the ages which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is associated in the next verse in whom we have boldness of access with confidence by the faith of him. Well now you see, we have these two words linked together. We have access, we have boldness of access into his presence. Then we have three families all belonging to the same father, <coughs> a family on earth, a family in the heavenly Jerusalem and a family of faith at the right hand, far above all. The firstborn's position is far above all nations of the earth, that's Israel. The firstborn's position in the heavenly Jerusalem is angels are beneath them, and in the church of the one body, principalities and powers in heavenly places where Christ sits. So it does seem to be a profitable thing for us if we allow the Apostle Paul to be our leader as he was led by the Lord. And we frame our teaching on the a pattern of his sound words. I commend to you these two. They are priceless. They are blood-bought. We have access by Christ and we have been given the adoption in him. Well now when we come next time 
we shall have to look at other features which belong to this. There is the peculiar expression all things which has to be wisely divided in its makeup, and there is also the need to be quite sure what we, what we mean when we speak in the scriptures of an apostle. And if you say, I know all that, well, come along nevertheless and enjoy it all over again, because I suppose you had your dinner yesterday and you added dinner today and you hope to have another one tomorrow, uh, because this is not merely something we learn for the first time and only time, it's a part of our spiritual uh, food to build us up in our most holy faith. And then pray with you that others in other parts who are sharing in this ministry, they may also be led by the Spirit of God to be more in earnest and more concerned that their language shall be in harmony with this pattern that God has given us to heed that we have a form of sound words which we can learn through the scriptures from this one that God has made the apostle of the Gentiles.